from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 18, Ultima 5, Warriors of Destiny. You can stand outside Lord British's castle and watch the day go by. In the evening, you'll see a new set of guards come out, and the current guards go to bed. Alternately, one guard will go eat at the pub, and the other will do so when he returns. Richard Garriott, interviewing Questbusters, The Adventurer's Newsletter, June 1987. Ultima 4 demonstrated the need for virtue and goodness. Ultima 5 shows what happens when that goodness is taken too far and becomes oppressive evil. Bottom line, not to be missed. Scorpia, Ultima 5 interview in Computer Gaming World, May 1988. In the long journey from Acalabeth to Ultima 4, Richard had slowly matured from an imaginative and adventurous boy to a skillful and innovative game designer. From unusual mixes of science fiction and fantasy combining elements that young nerds like him would surely enjoy, his attention had shifted to the player's experience and the moral dilemmas that they would have to face in order to complete their adventure. With Ultima 4, he had revolutionized the CRPG genre itself, and a new world had opened up. But there was still one last step to be taken. What remained missing from his series was a complex and non-trivial plot, one that was integrated into the gaming experience. Even in Ultima 4, the game world was static, and while the story proceeded, the player's choices did not impact the world. NPCs were either enemies to be defeated or stand-ins, sources of information through a complicated and not very successful dialogue system. For Ultima 5, however, Garriott had other and more ambitious plans. After the events of Ultima 4, the world of Britannia continued to enjoy a period of peace and prosperity enlightened by the virtues embodied by the Avatar. With the dungeons sealed by the Great Council and the population now prosperous and happy, everything seemed to be going well until a mysterious and vast underground world, the Underworld, was discovered. Intrigued, Lord British decided to make an expedition and explore it, but the group, led by the wise ruler of Britannia, ended up in the hands of an unknown and powerful force. With Lord British missing, the land was left without leadership, and it was up to Lord Blackthorne to take over the administration of the kingdom on an interim basis. Influenced by three ghostly figures, the Shadow Lords, Blackthorne quickly fell victim to moral corruption and began to impose a tyrannical and ruthless regime upon the citizens of Britannia, outlawing the heroes who had been the Avatar's fellow adventurers. This time, the player was called back by his old companions, Yolo and Shamino, rather than by Lord British, to take on the role of the Avatar once more and save the kingdom from oblivion. The player would first have to recover four powerful artifacts possessed by the king, his crown, his scepter, his amulet, and the sandalwood box, defeat the Shadow Lords, and, finally, descend into the underworld and save Lord British. Over the course of the adventure, the player would reach the discouraging conclusion that the Shadow Lords were nothing more than the incarnated antithesis of the three principles that animated the eight virtues. Falsehood instead of truth, cowardice instead of courage, and hatred instead of love. Generated as they were from three splinters of Mondane's immortality gem, which was destroyed by the Stranger in the first Ultima game, the Shadow Lords had long been imprisoned in the Underworld. But, once freed by adventurers, they began to take over Lord Blackthorne's mind. The latter became blinded by their evil influence and began to impose the virtues with a cruel and intransigent system of laws, transforming them into strict precepts such as, you will have to give half of your earnings in charitable works, or you will have nothing. This for the virtue of sacrifice. If you lose your honor, 
you will end your life for the virtue of honor, or you will confess your crime and suffer the just penalty, or you will be put to death for the virtue of justice. For the player, the first surprise was to discover that their previous actions had had tragic consequences. The destruction of the Gem of Immortality had created the Shadow Lords. The second surprise was that Lord Blackthorne was not moved by his own wickedness, but by very good intentions perverted by brutal and dictatorial methods. At the end of the game, freed from the Shadow Lord's influence and faced with the consequences of his own interim rule, Blackthorne would accept the sentence handed down to him by Lord British by entering a Moongate, never to return to his beloved Britannia, except in the last episode of the saga. Ultima IV, with the Eight Virtues, presented a good-versus-evil dynamic. In Ultima V, everything was different. The good deeds and intentions were transformed into a code of draconian laws and a ruthless and cruel reign, and the player was sometimes faced with very complex choices. In addition to the shape-shifting children's room, during the exploration of Blackthorn's castle, if in possession of a badge named the Black Badge, which enabled the player to move freely around the world, the party could use the password of oppression. This was sort of a secret society of special agents that the ruler used as a violent arm to impose his dominion. Without the black badge, the guards imprisoned the party, and the action moved to torture chambers within the castle, where Blackthone placed a difficult choice on the avatar, handing over one of the mantras of virtue to him, or seeing one of his companions, usually Yolo, perish cut in half by a pendulum. In other words, betray the cause or sacrifice a friend. Unfortunately, any choice made by the player in this scenario led to the same result. Their companion was cut in half and permanently eliminated from the game. The character would be deleted from the save game disc. This diminished the drama of the choice because whether or not the player decided to give in to blackmail, the captured companion was still executed, which pushed the player to reload rather than living with the consequences of their choice. The Shadow Lord's influence had an immediate impact on the behavior of NPCs in the world. Cowardice made the inhabitants of the cities escape at the sight of the Avatar, Falsehood made them thieves, and with hatred they became aggressive. The overworld and dungeon views in Ultima V were much more polished. The dialogue system had been slightly improved and more spells were available. With emphasis placed on the story, the technical side of the game changed very little, except for one notable innovation, Richard Garriott's intense attention to detail while recreating Britannia. The interaction with the game world took a leap forward, and Richard allocated resources to allow players to take torches from walls, sit at tables, or to use the tools they found in rooms and laboratories. One of the most interesting examples of this system was a telescope that allowed players to observe the eight planets of Britannia's solar system, as well as its two moons, and then to discover that their position and orientation changed over time. Richard was already an amateur astronomer by this point, and he took the luxury to implement an astronomical system on the limited resources of the Apple II. The result was that players with lots of patience to observe the sky of Britannia would see the conjunction of the eight planets, each representing one of the virtues, taking place punctually every five and a half years. Time in Ultima V was not only fundamental for the movement of the stars. Actions of non-player characters were scheduled, allowing the player to follow the townspeople and discover their habits, and more. This design decision required an incredible amount of effort to implement, and led to fewer NPCs in the game, 189 in comparison to Ultima 4's 309. But each character had more things to say and information to share, not only through dialogues, but also through the observation of their daily activity. Origin would continue to grow to the point of being equipped with a QA department, but that came after Ultima 5. The only testing done on the game was done at the end of the production cycle, and manifested as a competition between the two programmers who had worked the most on it. 
Richard Garriott, and John Miles. In fact, they had made a bet on who could complete a playthrough the fastest. Miles focused on upgrading his character and using a magic object, an axe, to take on any challenge to get to the end of the game as quickly as possible. Garriott, on the other hand, focused on creating a party, powering it up and facing the strongest enemies as a team. According to Miles, The magic axe was overpowered to the point of unbalancing the game. It was basically a long-range boomerang that did as much damage as a good sword, so it was possible to gain a lot of gold in a hurry once you had it, and plow through the game with little resistance. The important thing was getting the magic axe ASAP. Since the other party members wouldn't have had the benefit of the axe, I certainly wouldn't have been in a hurry to recruit them. Richard's strategy did not work as well. Miles, beating him on time and retrieving the magic axe before anything else, managed to take the lead and finish the game first. I beat Richard by immediately setting out for one of the towns in the Western Isles, I think it was Scarabray, but it might have been Jalem, as soon as possible after the game started. I vaguely remember using the magic carpet from LB's castle to get there. Published for the Apple II in March of 1988, Ultima V came with a generous load of documentation and goodies in its box. The extensive book of lore contained game information on spells, bestiary, and equipment. The usual fabric map of Britannia was present. The Journal of Lord British's Journey to the Underworld was a diary of Lord British's inauspicious expedition into the underground of Britannia. And there was also a medallion, the Codex Coin, with a diagram of the virtues. Curiously, the Codex Coin also appeared depicted in the introduction of the game, where it was described as the magic object that Yolo and Shamino had used to transport the player to Britannia and, immediately thereafter, to drive away the Shadow Lords, an action not repeatable later on in the game. Since Lord British was missing, the supplied Codex Coin was a tangible link between the game and reality. Developed on an Apple II, Ultima V once again used the Mockingboard for music and sound effects. Users with newer and more powerful sound cards, such as Applied Engineering's Phasor and Passport Design's MIDI interface, could further enjoy the 14 tracks composed by Ken Arnold and the song Stones, written by Yolo and Gweno, a.k.a. David R. Watson and Kathleen Jones. According to Watson, My late wife, Gweno, wrote the words, mostly, and I composed the tune. We had just come home from our honeymoon in Britain, and I was fitting new strings to my lute. The tuning process led to the first bars of the tune, Gwino, who was very fond of Stonehenge, immediately started work on the poem. We had the whole thing worked out in less than an hour. Later, Richard needed music for one of his games, and we offered Stones and a couple of others as a simple handshake deal. Later, when EA bought Origin and Gwino was ill with cancer, EA formalized the use of Stones with an actual legal permission, with a formal contract and a nice check. We really needed that infusion of cash at the time. Ken Arnold, meanwhile, noted... For Ultima V, Richard wanted to include a tune by a friend, colleague in the Society for Creative Anachronism, SCA, named Yolo Fitzowen. We went to his house and recorded him singing and playing lute. I tried to be as faithful as possible to the recording. It turned out to be many people's favorite, and it still runs through my head occasionally. David Watson remembered the encounter thusly. I remember well when Ken and Richard came over to the house I shared with Gwino. We had a fine visit and recorded Stones and probably the Baron of Eastmark song as well. B of E ended up years later as the opening tune for Sota, Shroud of the Avatar, though the recording they used as a basis was done in our friend Truly Carmichael's closet recording studio years ago, and still years ago. Both were good songs that came from the heart, and I am very pleased that Richard chose them for his games. Although both pieces of music were proposed by Watson, the one chosen for Ultima was Stone's. Stones is a bit simpler, and the game in question allowed or encouraged the gamer to play the tune in order to open a locked door, 
Perhaps R.G. and the designers decided it would be easier that way. Arnold's visit would not remain an isolated incident. Watson's house, and later his laboratory, would be an essential step for the staff involved in the following chapters of Ultima. The Apple II's graphics capabilities were now obsolete, but versions on other hardware did not undergo any radical improvement apart from the one on Commodore 64 and 128, which was entrusted to Dr. Cat. Unlike previous Ultima conversions, I started working on it before the Apple version was complete, so that the Commodore version could ship soon after it was done. The choice made sense considering that by 1988, the install base of the Commodore 64 was ahead of any other gaming computer. According to Dr. Cat, The Commodore 64 sold more units than any other model of personal computer. The company claimed it sold 20 million C64s, but people researching it more recently have found out they were exaggerating, and the true number is more like 12.5 million. The workhorse computer so wanted by Jack Tramiel, moreover, was a machine used mainly for games as opposed to the Apple II, which was often used in offices and schools. The population of players, therefore, was much higher on the Commodore platform. As with Mobius, Dr. Cat went the extra mile in porting Ultima 5 to the Commodore platform. Origin didn't insist that I do extra programming to take advantage of the Commodore 128, but I wanted to, so they purchased a 128 and I had it in my office to work with in addition to the Commodore 64. The Commodore 128 had been on the market since 1985, but sales did not meet expectations. Commodore had tried several times to interest consumers in more powerful models, but none had displaced the Commodore 64. By 1989, the C128 was retired after selling almost 6 million units, less than half of its underpowered little brother, but still more than all Apple II models combined. Taking advantage of the C128's backwards compatibility, Dr. Cat created a game that could run on both machines. When it started, it would check whether it was running on a C64 or a C128, and do some extra things if it was running on a 128. With more RAM at his disposal, Dr. Cat used the extra 64K of memory for music, which was absent on the Commodore 64, and also for caching the combat and dungeon data. Even the 16K of additional memory that came on the C128's video chip were used to reduce load from the four floppy disks that the game came on. Such a high number of floppy disks, double-sided at that, not only imposed more disk changes, but also cut into potential profits. As Dr. Cat explained, Richard had some big arguments with Robert about the game going from two disks to three disks to four disks, as each additional disk added around a dollar to the manufacturing cost, and thus stripped a dollar per unit from the profits. But Richard was adamant about making the best possible game he could. This problem would crop up again later, and then more urgently. Ken Arnold helped Dr. Cat to solve a problem with the SID, Commodore's sound chip. For the rest of the porting, Dr. Cat had a grand time using all of the 16 colors available on the C64's video chip, again, improving his version of Ultima 5 compared to the original. And, because of this upgrade, he was well rewarded. With Ultima 5, they were fairly generous with me. When production packaging was designed, I got the nice surprise that instead of the usual C64 version sticker to put on the box, they had made a special C64 version by Dr. Cat sticker that would go on every package. That was some nice additional exposure for me. Programming work on Ultima 5 was done mainly in the New Hampshire office of Origin Systems, where Dr. Cat had remained together with most of the programmers when Richard and the Rebels, as Miles had called them, set sail for Texas. Toward the end of development, Dr. Cat, along with many others, also left the old premises to move to Austin. My office in New Hampshire was given to John Romero, who had been hired to work on the PC versions of Origin games. 
I had an image writer printer that I owned but didn't need anymore, and I had one less Amdek color monitor than I needed. So I left my printer in that office and took one of the Origin and took one of Origin's monitors with me instead. They cost about the same amount of money at the time, so I thought it was a fair trade. John later remarked to me how funny he thought it was that I had glued a rubber toy rat to the printer. I told him I hadn't glued it. The heat generated by the printer had partly melted the rat and sealed it to the surface of the printer. Other ports of Ultima 5, for example to the Atari 800, remained substantially the same as the original, except for the PC version, released in October of 1988, which took advantage of the new EGA graphics, and was therefore much more colorful. Other 16-bit ports for Amiga and Atari ST enjoyed mouse support, but were full of bugs, which were never patched. Due to the termination of the affiliate relationship with Electronic Arts a few months prior, Ultima 5 was published and sold through Broderbund. This commercial relationship with the Carlston Brothers Company wouldn't last long, but it did give Origin the opportunity to temporarily move out of EA's orbit. The Ultima 5 engine did include a blacklist of offensive and vulgar words in its conversation engine. Because of the rapidly worsening relationship between Richard Garriott and EA, Richard had taken a small revenge by including the word electronic arts in the list of banned words. Dr. Cat also had to deal with this small piece of code for his C64-C128 port of the game. I took one look at that very short list of swear words and I said to myself, well, I know a lot more swear words than that. I took it as a challenge. So I added to the C64 version every single naughty word I can think of, including Gamma Hooch, which I read in a book that reprinted some old Victorian erotica. By 1988, the CRPG genre had become overcrowded. Ultima V had to compete with other important titles like Wasteland, Might and Magic 2, Gates to Another World, The Bard's Tale 2, The Destiny Knight, Pool of Radiance by SSI, and Wizardry V, Heart of the Maelstrom. Of all of its competitors, the most fearsome was Pool of Radiance. This first installment, in a long series of titles that would use the Gold Box engine, was strongly influenced by both Ultima and Wizardry. With Ultima, it shared the representation of the party via a top-down perspective, as well as tactical combat, while with Wizardry, it shared 3D dungeons, along with a view screen located at the top left. Although some reviewers noticed that Pool of Radiance mixed aspects already seen in other games, the mix was well calibrated and used the AD&D license. The combat system included many tactics, and the system of spells, skills, and character development was very satisfying. Overall, Pool of Radiance sold 264,000 copies, beating both Ultima V and the second episode of The Bard's Tale, winning the 1988 sales record in the CRPG category. Then there was another influential classic. FTL's Dungeon Master was released in December of 1987 for Atari's new 16-bit wonder, the Atari ST. Jack Tramiel had bought Atari to take revenge on Commodore with another low-priced machine. Dungeon Master revolutionized first-person dungeon crawlers with its unprecedented immersive experience. Its real-time gameplay was supported by an excellent use of sound effects, simple dynamic lighting, and graphics that raised the bar for the competition. Fluid gameplay was made possible due to the game's activity-based progression system and its uncluttered user interface. Dungeon Master also featured an intuitive mouse control system, allowing players to pick up, drop, and throw objects in the view. The mouse could also be used to manage inventory via a new innovation, a paper doll interface. Spells were based on combining runes, but with very different mechanics than had been used in Ultima 4. Dungeon Master was an instant phenomenon, and became the best-selling title for the Atari ST, and was even responsible for increased sales of the computer, and later for memory upgrades on the Amiga. 
It was ported to other systems, even consoles, and several Japanese computer systems as well. Dungeon Master was so well executed and feature-rich that later games in this subgenre, such as Eye of the Beholder, released in 1991, or Captive, released in 1990, were called Dungeon Master clones. It influenced other CRPGs and their developers too, including Richard Garriott himself and his freelance collaborator, Paul Neurath. Ultima 5 also clashed with a title published by Origin when its Commodore 64 port was released. Times of Lore, Chris Roberts' side project, was the latest addition to the long list of OSI titles which sold well enough, but were not breakout successes, therefore becoming collector's items. Something about Roberts' game, though, would survive in Ultima. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash sssshpodcast or at spamspamspamhumbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T-H-E-I-R-A dot I-T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-N-T-A-T-O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.